Uh, once again, we come this morning to look at the book of Matthew. You remember from last week that Jesus has begun to speak to those around him and to his disciples using the parables. Simple, plain, everyday examples of life used to explain and to teach about the secrets of the kingdom. Things like spreading seed and making bread. Secrets showing how God is reigning and ruling in this world, even now. Secrets that have been hidden and kept from the understanding of people since creation until now, until Jesus is here revealing them to those that are listening, those that have ears to hear. These are secrets that, although being explained in seemingly simple terms, cannot be understood, cannot be rejoiced in, outside of true faith in Jesus Christ, in following him. Only those that are called by Jesus, people that do the will of my Father, are those that understand. That is to hold him as sovereign Lord over this world, as we've even sung this morning, and respond to the words of Jesus rather than holding their own understanding, their own opinion of themselves as actually greater than the Creator. But submit to him and submit to these parables even though they may not be easy. So I pray this morning that we would come with hearts, eager to listen to God's word of how he reigns, to take it as true, to take it as good and right, even though it may be difficult and even though it may be vastly different to what our hearts have told us as we've grown up, as the world has informed us. And that we should examine and test my words this morning as well so that we might know God's truth and willingly submit to it. Now, last week, Jeff preached on the parable of the sower, a parable speaking of Jesus giving the word of God to the people and the different ways in which we then respond to that word and how this revelation equips the disciples for their ministry and for the expectations of what ministry was going to look like as they preached that word to the people. This morning we speak instead of the patience and the power of the kingdom of God, shown in three parables, that of the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed and the yeast. Before we go any further, <clears throat> even though Lachlan's prayed for me, I need more prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just in reading and being reminded of what we've heard in the parables. Lord, desperately desire to be that good ground that the word falls on. That it would take root and, Lord, bury its roots deeply and grow richly, that we might bear fruit for the kingdom. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to be able to hear Give us hearts ready to receive. And Lord, where we hear a word that might be troubling or difficult to test it against your word, and if it is true, Lord, to accept it. Heavenly Father, lend me your words this morning and your heart for your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.
I want to start by asking a question. If God is active in his reign upon the earth, what is he doing concerning sin and evil men or evil humanity? It's, little, it's of little surprise to us when we read this parable to find out that this world is occupied by both those that are of the children of God and those that are of the children of the devil. If this is a surprise, we may need to get out of the house a little more often. There's those that are called righteous and those that are called evil by Jesus. One thing we come to realise through this passage is that wherever God plants his people, the devil has also planted his. Wherever. It doesn't take long to scope out the news websites to see that there is great evil that takes place in this world. Much done at the hands of people. When I was 21, I travelled to Sudan, now called South Sudan in Africa, for two months for a short-term mission trip. I wanted to see more of the world, to see how it worked. And as anyone or any growing up in the church in their early 20s, short-term mission was the way that you do that. I also wanted to see something in a bizarre way of what evil really looked like. In Australia, it seems so hidden away, so done behind closed doors or dressed up to look acceptable. But in Africa, it felt like what I was going to see would carry a gun instead or a knife. I hope the experience would open my eyes a little to the reality of how the world really is. And it did. While there, we visited a children's rehabilitation clinic in the town of Yay. It wasn't a medical clinic that treated debilitation of the body, but instead that those things that affect the mind. You see, these kids have been, were children that had been kidnapped from their homes, from their beds in the night, taken from their families and were brainwashed to join, to become soldiers in the LRA, which is the Lord's Resistance Army. They were younger than 10 years old and exposed to things that break the mind at that age. One of the activities that the kids at the centre participated in was drawing. Now, Catherine and I, our kids do a lot of drawing and come Christmas time and birthdays, we receive a deluge of drawings. <laughs> it's the most acceptable gift. Drawings with animals and flowers and pictures of our family or holding hands. Unless one of us isn't, you know, in the good books at the time, you might be slightly further away. <laughs> Lovely drawings, innocent drawings. But then you see the pictures of what these kids were drawing. And there's pictures of people holding guns and knives and of blood and of death from children. It is not hard to see that there is evil in this world. And this is just one instance of its effects, but whether... It is raw and in your face like this or closed behind doors and dressed up and acceptable. It's still there. And it's been throughout our history. It's not insubstantial. So the parable's initial statements that there is evil in the world as well as good seems so obviously true. But I believe we can also apply this to the church, to the confessing church. God, wherever he plants his seed, 
The enemy sneaks in in the dead of night and plants his as well. We are all too familiar with hypocritical believers in our own experience, but also from the scriptures. From Matthew chapter 7, we hear Jesus teach about true and false prophets, true and false teachers, and true and false disciples. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles. And then you get those words, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are those that do not do the will of the Father, who do not bear good fruit in and amongst those that do. And tempt those that are on the narrow path off of it, causing division and opportunity for the world to point and say, look, look at the church. Where is their God? Hypocrites. I've heard all too many people say after being hurt by the church, how could this be? Shouldn't the church of all places be safe from those with evil in their hearts? Be safe from hypocrisy? But even the churches have bad seed in them. Now we believe in a holy God, don't we? A God that hates evil and loves good. A sovereign God who sees all and knows all and has the power to do anything that he wants. So where is he? When evil takes place in the world, what is he doing? What is his plan? We could ask the same question when Christians are persecuted in the world, when God's people suffer at the hands of these people of the devil, of this bad seed. Where is God? Is he reigning? What about when churches are pulled apart from the inside because of false teachers, of wolves that are in the flock? What is God doing? Is his holiness, has it become softer? Has it become more tolerant and accepting of sin that he would allow these things? Or a question that strikes us when considering evil and suffering, particularly when it is personal and we feel it ourselves, is does he even care? Well, the parable goes on to tell us of Jesus finding out that there is uh, that the evil one has planted seed in and amongst his crop. Should we go in, the servants say, and pull up all of the weeds? Should we remove them all today and end the suffering? Doesn't that seem like a good idea? Don't we all ask that question? Haven't we all been asked that question? Wouldn't it be good if God just ended all of the pain and suffering today? What does the harvester say? Jesus says, no, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat as well. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters to first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Where is God? What is he doing? Is he reigning? Does he care? We have a God who is there, who is reigning, who is patiently waiting in his reigning. Not because he doesn't care for his children, but because he cares so much for his children. That he wouldn't dare pull up a weed if it meant losing even a small portion of his harvest. He won't bring judgment early and remove those that are devils because he knows even as he sees his suffering, sees our suffering, and as he has felt it himself in his son, that it would cause damage to his crop, to his seed. And his children are far too important to him. Now, commentators point out that it was, in fact, a common practice for a shady neighbour to plant and scatter weed all through their neighbour's crop if they wanted them to have a bad harvest. It was so common that law was made to ban it from happening. You don't ban it unless it's happening. These weeds of choice were called tares, and they are particularly insidious because the weed looks identical to wheat while it's immature. Identical. You could not tell them apart. Only by the time that the heads of the wheat and the head of the tear has developed can you see a difference. And by that time, the roots have gone down and entangled together. And to pull up one weed meant you may pull up a wheat as well before it was mature, before it was ready, and it would die and be no good. And you destroyed your own crop. The only answer was to wait until harvest was mature and ready to be brought into the barn. Well, God is diligently waiting for the maturity of his crop. He doesn't pull one sinner if it means the cost of a single child. Now, I understand that this is not an easy parable to accept, particularly when you have felt suffering in your own life, felt the impact and the weight and the consequence of sin and evil. But he is the Lord of the harvest. And his wisdom and his love know no bounds. We read only or sung only a moment ago, behold our God. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? This is a parable that puts the Lord in his place. There's so much more above his crop who knows and cares for it perfectly. 
and his patience with the presence of sin may have meant that you and I have been included in the kingdom, where it may not have been the case if he had judged early, if he had pulled sin from the world early. Now, he has not grown soft in his patience and more tolerance and accepting of sin, for we see at the end of the parable a day coming when Jesus will return, when the harvest is ready and the weeds are burnt and the source of those weeds is burnt. There's no middle ground. There's no acceptance. He's just been waiting for the maturity of his crop. His holiness and his wrath towards sin has un, been unchanged. All evil stripped away from the righteous and now there is a pure harvest and everyone that could have entered the kingdom does because of his patience. And we who suffered because of the presence of evil in the world while he waited, while we wait with him, aren't broken because we spent time in this world amongst sin. Instead, in Jesus' own words, we shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Not described any longer as bruised reeds or a smoking flax, no weeping and no sorry, sorrow, but glory. This parable gives us a new understanding of the operation and the timeline of the world. When evil comes knocking at the door of our lives and we see and we feel its impact, we can be sorrowful. We can lament, but not out of hopelessness. Not wondering where God is, if he is ruling or if he cares at all nor jumping ourselves to wanting to judge others or becoming frustrated with God, but trusting and waiting patiently with him. Because the Lord is at work, reigning well and waiting, as we can for the fullness of the harvest to be complete. That as we wait, as we endure, more brothers and sisters are coming into maturity and into the kingdom. And one day we'll be united with those people. Now, while the parable of wheat and tares speaks of God's patience with bad seeds, as a part of his reign on earth, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven speaks of his power during this time and its unassuming origins. Now, regarding these two parables, I've read and listened to many different interpretations in commentaries. Unlike the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus does not give me a very convenient explanation for what everything is. And you may have heard yourself from preachers telling you something slightly different to what I say this morning. Most are down the same track. There are some strange ones out there. I don't think and I don't want us to be distracted by the differences this morning, but to listen and then to examine yourself later on. It is said that a mustard seed turning into a tree 
and a little lump of leaven which would have been an old piece of the dough from the last batch of bread, turning into, I think it says 60 pounds of flour, being effective for 60 pounds of flour. That's 27 kilos. Is absurd. Because a mustard seed is a herb and it doesn't turn into a tree. It turns into a bush. That's four to five feet tall. And that's simply too little leaven to be effective for so much flour. And that Jesus is in fact pointing out the unrealness of the situation. The power of what's happening there. But, this is where I would disagree. For the parables Jesus uses doesn't use unreal things to explain them but very real everyday examples of life that were understood in the time to show how the kingdom works. Everyday, common examples. We've already seen that in the case of the last two parables of sowing seeds. Yes, a mustard seed is a herb, but the variety that's found in Israel is in fact known to grow, given time, to 15 feet tall. And it's been said that a man riding a horse can go under its lower branches. I can see why it may have been said that it was a tree, even though it was a herb. If not used for wood, it was still a tree in stature. Certainly large enough. And yeast even found in the smallest of amounts if worked through flour through batter is effective given time given enough time sourdough starts off of just the small amount of yeast that floats in the air that's in here and we breathe in the point of the two parables put one after the other isn't the absurdity of it it's the unassuming origin of something incredible coming out of it an unlikely nature of the method of God's power in the world. Both the mustard seed and the leaven look like nothing. A mustard seed is like a grain of sand on your finger. And a piece of leaven is just that. It's an old piece of dough. Mixed in and totally unseen when it's brought in with the flour. If you were to hold this seed and this leaven up and compare it to the final product that it produces in time, it's, it's unfathomable. But it would have been understood that it's true, that this is what happens, that this little seed can talk, grow into a tree large enough for a man and a horse to ride under that this small amount of leaven can be effective to rise 27 kilos of flour, you think it's incredible of what's happening here. And this is what the kingdom of God is like. First and foremost, it's what we see when we look at Jesus and his legacy of life and power in the gospel that he leaves. Jesus himself, who was he in the world? while he lived. Now, Alexander the Great was a significant man. He had the power of an empire behind him, but who was Jesus? 
to effect change, let alone the obscure teachings that he leaves behind just with 12 disciples that used to be fishermen. He was one prophet amongst many. He came from a nowhere town, according to Nathaniel, and he was a carpenter's son whose own teachings were rejected by his hometown as ridiculous. How could this come from a carpenter's son, Mary's son? And yes, he did become a threat to Israel's other teachers, but within three years they'd killed him. What impact was he going to have? The gospel has unassuming beginnings. And I'm sure that when Jesus gave his disciples the great commission to go and witness, be witnesses of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, they wondered to themselves, how in the world is this going to work? This is not going to work. We are so small and the world is so big. So unassuming, so unlikely. There are plenty of books out there seeking to answer just these questions. How to have an effective ministry. How to be successful evangelists. How to get bums in pews. How to grow faith in your congregation. Don't we wonder this question ourselves? I'm thinking particularly about Sunday school teachers and parents when you tell your kids about Jesus, when you pour out your soul to share about the great love that you have of him and you get a blank face in return or they're mucking around <laughs> and you ask the following week or even the next day or even five minutes later, what do you remember? And that's, that's it, nothing. <laughs> Doesn't it make you wonder in those moments about your effectiveness? What about all those gospel conversations that you might have with your neighbour or your family members or your friends? Will they ever take root? Will anything ever grow out of these conversations? Am I being effective? I wonder this about my preaching. I once had an elder fall asleep in one of my sermons. It wasn't here. But I am watching, Callum. <laughs> I confronted him later. It wasn't a subtle sleep either. <laughs> I confronted him later. So you fell asleep during my sermon. <laughs> oh, I was praying. <laughs> sure. Sure. What about those small country churches that look like they're on their last legs with only a handful of people in attendance anymore? Are they still being effective for the ministry, for the gospel, for the kingdom that we're talking about? Or are they no longer? What are we to do? Is our witness concerning Jesus no longer enough? Is the gospel in itself no longer enough? Do we need to turn to some of those 
12-step easy books that can be bought? Do we need to buy that coffee machine that Jeff mentioned last week? Or get some lights up here? Probably more light up here is not a good idea. Do we need to sign up to effective programs? Or do we need to stop doing it all together and just trust the professionals, those that are employed? No. For all of the unlikeliness of the mustard seed, it turns into a tree that can be ridden under. For all of the unlikeliness of the leaven, it's effective to raise 27 kilos of flour. For all of the unlikeliness of Jesus and his disciples, the message and the witness of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. And it has outlasted kingdoms and empires and epochs of time. It's changed natures and cultures for the good. And it will last, as we have already seen, it lasts until the last day when Christ returns. No matter what will come along, for even though it is unassuming, even appearing to do little in the beginning, it is the power of God in this world to save. So we should take heart this morning in the unassuming gospel that it is the power of God in this world to make differences, to change, to bring more people into that kingdom while we patiently wait. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I give thanks for this word that you've given. Lord, for one of those moments where you are suddenly caught up in the perspective, your perspective of the world, we give thanks for the insights in how you are ruling and reigning, Lord, so that we, who you rule over, who you reign over, can know and can trust in your plans, in your desire for your kingdom, for your people, even as we go through suffering here and now. Heavenly Father, I recognise that this is not an easy message, particularly for anyone that is in the throes of suffering. So, Father, I pray for your comfort for those people. Lord, to know deeply that you understand our suffering because you have experienced it through your Son. You know it profoundly and deeply and more than we could understand. 
and yet you wait so that each one of us, for our children, Lord, for those who don't know you but soon one day will, might enter your kingdom. We pray that we might have a clear vision and understanding that whatever we suffer in this life, whatever brokenness, if we proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord, there will be a day where all of that will be stripped away. No longer those broken reeds, bruised reeds and smoking flax, but just glorious in your sight and reunited to the one who has been so patient and so loving. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the way in which you rule. I pray that you continue to open our eyes in the days to come to your word, to how you operate, and to a greater affection for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.